You're listening to Flux Pod. My name is Matthew Perpetua. This episode features uh, music writer uh, Chris Ott. And uh, Chris is best known for the, I think, probably the best known for the Joy Division book. Uh, he wrote for the 33 and the Third series. That is uh, Unknown Pleasures. Uh, he's also done a lot of videos and podcasts and writing uh, under the name Shallow Rewards. He was uh, one of the OG Pitchfork writers. You know, he's a uh, he's a guy with a lot of opinions. Uh, I think he's mellowed out with age. I think you'll find that in this uh, a thoughtful man. Uh, you know, we're going to get to a lot of things in this one, including uh, CDs. We talk a lot about CDs. We talk about like music gear and uh, online communities around music, and things like that. Uh, this is the first of two episodes. The second episode uh, for this will come out on Saturday as the Patreon-exclusive episode. You want that one and all the other Patreon episodes, you want to head up patreon.com slash fluxblog. $5 a month will get you all that stuff. And I also want to point out, uh, if you want to hear more of me, I'm on the new episode of Junk Filter, a uh, new podcast by uh, Jesse Hawken. He's a, a guy up in uh, Toronto who's well-known on the internet, I think, in certain circles. He's a, a mostly a film guy, but in this episode, we talk all about Steely Dan. It is a great time. I think you will really enjoy it. Uh, and just You should check out the other episodes. Also, it's a good podcast. It's called Junk Filter, and the episode I'm on is called Dan Pilled. But right now, let's get to Chris Ott. Chris Ott, tell the listeners who you are and what you do. Uh, my name's Chris Ott. I'm a music writer, critic, whatever you want to say, in my former life, I guess. Um, I still do the odd podcast. Um, I've just been around in the margins. Basically, I was a, you know, like you, I was someone that was there early on, uh, especially when I was with Pitchfork and then kind of built my own thing for a while. And then after that, you know, the whole music Twitter period, uh, which <laughs> ended up being not a great experience. So the last 10 years, well, let's say the last five years, um, you know, have been sort of uh, going down the ladder of adulthood and having growing children. And so a lot of the, you know, I don't want to say requirements, but a lot of what goes on online is increasingly sort of foreign to me. Um, so it's, it's good and bad. Like I get to pick my spots, but then I'm not also like in the mix and increasingly, you know, obviously lots of people don't have any idea who I am or what. <laughs> right. And these days, like a lot of the stuff you do, um, you, you work with video a lot and streaming, you mess around a lot with like a uh, discord. You're kind of, I think you're actually a couple steps ahead of a lot of people. <laughs> yeah, I did. Um, so I, I had all these, all there was a lot of fallout uh, when I quit Twitter. There was some uh, really annoying stuff that happened with my identity being stolen and um, just all kinds of nonsense. But so I just kind of went away for a couple of years. And then right before COVID, you know, someone was telling me, it was actually a little bit before COVID, that uh, Discord was really taking off and that there were pretty significant communities. So I started a Discord. And um, we got up to, you know, it was under 500 people, but it was humming pretty good. And like people were making limited edition t-shirts and sending them all to each other. We were doing movie nights. Like it was really fun. And I knew a lot of these people um, over the years who had been kind of lifer, you know, I don't want to say fans, but people who liked what I had to say back to the, you know, DSLR videos I did 10 years ago on YouTube. Um, and the discord was, was really cool. It was a really cool central hub. And that ran for about a year. And I started doing YouTube live streams when COVID broke out in, you know, I think it was mostly April and May, um, of 2020. And, um, you know, and that was cool too, in its own way. And in those, but, in those, you were kind of, uh, doing like histories, I guess, like improv, improvisational histories. You're kind of using a prompt and moving from there. Yeah. Like, I, so what's it, it started out, like I literally would go down in the basement with like four pints of Guinness and spend an hour and a half just pulling records out of my shelves just because I felt like there was this community, you know, it's not a huge community, but people I had been around and stuff who were like getting sick of Twitter for the same reasons I had. And so it was just like a hangout thing. But then gradually I started thinking about it. And I started doing more pointed things. I was calling Chart Sweep, which is an evolution control committee um, 
uh, maxi MP3 they put out back in the early MP3 days where they played like 10 seconds of every top 10 hit since 1950 or whatever in one song. if you remember that but that was i stole the name from that and i, I remember just went, something called introspection i don't think that was them though yeah i'm not sure it, it, I, it was like a similar concept where it was just kind of like the intros of a bunch of songs and it was kind of artfully put together that was probably around like 2002 i'm guessing yeah it was all around yeah it's like pre too many djs pre <laughs> you know dj kicks era um right i mean if you remember like the boom selection thing they ended up putting out like a, a like a multiple cdr thing that just kind of collected a bunch of mp3s totally yep. uh, uh, but yeah that's in there um that's actually the first thing i ever wrote about semi-professionally i think i was where i was writing for someone else's thing I think I have the folder of MP3s that you put out on that blog post on a hard drive, like boom, select all that stuff. I still have like just hot dump folders and old drives where I saved all that stuff. Um, that was the crazy audio galaxy days. Right. But just yeah. to finish up. So I, I did like year by year analysis, right. I would just pick a year and I would literally read the chart and goof and remember things from when I was a kid. It was really personal more than critical. And again, this was during like the, the, the complete blackout panic at the start of COVID. So it had a very different vibe, but then gradually I started doing these, um, you know, more analytic critical things. And I did one on IDM and one on pop punk and really just, you know, nineties punk. And it just started kind of coming back at me, like the noise of being out there again. And, um, you know, look, I've said it a million times, like my, my two oldest kids are going to be teenagers here in a minute. And so I have a very different, you know, kind of, uh, like thermometer or temperature when it comes to what's going on with having your name out there anymore. Uh, so it runs hot and cold for that reason. And as much as, you know, unfortunately having been targeted by some people that I pissed off or whatever. Yeah. I mean, well, the thing that came to mind when you're talking about it, like, oh, it's a small community. It's like 500 people. And I think that that's kind of where we're kind of headed back to after the past, uh, let's say, 10 years or so of mass social media, that the idea of like communities don't need to scale. Yeah. Communities can be perfectly fine without having to be like every person conceivable, like be able to just kind of stumble into it. Like having communities that are just like really focused that are, you know, I think those are ultimately more valuable. And like, I think when people go to social media, that's what they want. It just happens to be in the same space as everything else. So yeah, I, think, the- I think, I think that's kind of where like discord really points towards like a, like the best elements of it, of, of message boards, of Slack, of, of a lot of things and kind of puts it all together into uh, something I think can be helpful in the future. And may- maybe it won't be them who win this, but I-, I think that that's the shape of things to come. I totally agree. You know, and I mentioned in passing the, the music Twitter period, and there was so much false amplification and like ratio, you know, I, I mean, I was right in the middle of it and it was, we, we knew that magazines were buying tons of bot farms. So like as a joke, a bunch of different people bought bots, like just because it was like, you, you don't like every writer in every publication had 12 to 15,000 followers. And it just, it didn't scan like none of it scanned in terms of, uh, the data footprint of what was going on, but it created this false pressure, like exactly what you're talking about, where it seemed like this was this big world, but in reality, and I've said this in a number of videos and stuff, look at, you know, there's ways you can figure out the, the size of this whole thing in terms of really obsessive kind of people where endorphins get fired talking about music or having 4,000 CDs. You know, I personally, I don't, it's barely six figures. I I just don't think it's as big a a world as maybe a lot of people who came to it during that period perceived. 
Yeah. And I think that there's, you know, well, why did we feel that things, music uh, writing, music media could scale in that way? And I think, okay, one, you have MTV, but MTV and radio are different beasts. They're passive things. They're not writing. Uh, but like the magazines, like even at the in the boom, I would like I think like the the nineties is a particular big magazine boom for sales. Oh, the Entertainment Weekly period, dude, that was nuts. I right. was at Time Inc. Then that's when I worked at Time Inc. Yeah, I mean, I I have been collecting a lot of uh, Rolling Stones and Spins from that era, and yeah, it's just like 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 Spin was a magazine that had like real power. It certainly had real power over me when I was a teenager because I just look at these magazines and I just reverse engineer like, oh, that's why I got that. That's why I bought that. that's that's why I had like four stereo lab CDs before I graduated high school. You know? Yeah, <laughs> there's no other reason why that would happen, um, but. Yeah, so you get this illusion that things could sell. And, you know, a lot of things that magazines and newspapers could do, uh, especially the more adventurous stuff or the more interesting stuff, like you cannot do them in the age of internet because, you know, back then you couldn't see that your audience didn't care about those pages. <laughs> I, the thing <laughs> I think about... wasn't transparent. Yeah, it wasn't. The thing I think about when you mentioned spin is like, in the Byron Coley days when uh -huh. it started, they went out and got people who were like huge, had huge cred in the zine scenes. Oh, um, I mean, if you look at the ones in the 80s, there's like several columns to underground music, not just one, but several. Yep. And they had Jim Greer and Jim Greer was the big one in the 90s. And, you know, look, that guy single handedly breaks guided by voices, you know, pavement probably too. They reviewed the the um, Perfect Sound Forever 10 inch in spin. Like I remember them talking about the slanted tape, which was going around for like eight months before the album came out. I had a copy and the buzz around pavement was, was hugely built in the same way that later pitchfork would do for lots of bands um, through the journalists doing that kind of, you know, crowbarring it in there and getting it in the magazine. And that goes like without getting too far down the rabbit hole, think of the way all the UK trades ran. You know, I've talked to Simon Reynolds a number of different times privately and we did a podcast um, those journalists were in huge, they, they had huge control over what would get lobbied for and the bands were like pissed about it. So it's a weird, weird, um, interplay between roles and, and the whole thing to come full circle was driven by the fact that there was money because there was physical media. And yeah. once that goes away, all there is is advertising and it just totally changed everything. Yeah. Well, I think when thinking about something like Discord, which is, you know, that's more like a message board than it's than it is a publication, obviously. I mean, it basically is a message board just run with different software. Um, I think that the potential there is to kind of get back to something like uh, I Love Music, the ILX days um, where, Ooh, you boy. know, and I, I think like that's a I'm sure there's other uh consequential music message boards and things like that. But that one I think has a, has a really long tail in terms of the sheer volume of people who were either working music journalists or people who became working music journalists, people who were musicians and had like, like who ended up having some kind of career like John Darnielle being the, the, probably the biggest example. Um, you know, I, I think there's more potential for that. And like, that was not a thing that needed to scale. That was about as big as it was going to be. Yeah, I mean, I'd take the other side of that question, too, which is that, you know, where do we have something that unifies these pockets of three to 500 person discords? Does everything have to be a self brand? Look at Substack. You know, this is the big argument about Substack and Substack Pro or whatever they're calling it. There's a lot of noise right now um, around that whole, you know, is that an elitist thing? Where are the controls? Who gets extended these offers? Um, the the the, the concept, there's two concepts that come out of this. One is the audience feeling that they're a stakeholder and that they have a say in what these platforms become and how they involve, evolve, which makes very little sense to me, but that's a whole other conversation. But as you said, it's the idea that the discords and the Reddit subs too, right? You know, indie heads is probably yeah. the biggest thing. Um, these are communities that don't want to scale. And is that, where does that come from? Is it is it naturally a number of people like there's just that many people interested or is there a self-policing kind of thing? Cause when you think about like they're, they don't have nearly the impact they used to, but like when 4chan and Moo became really big during the whole heyday of like when were blew up and death consciousness and all that, that weird suburban um, like 
Ang Lee kids. Like they, they were so intense and emo. Um, these communities, like, are they just naturally of a certain size or are they self-policing? And is there some kind of elitism? I, I can't say. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I think the ideal thing is like these, these scenes that happen on message boards and discords, whatever, you know, they, they're basically simulations of things that happen in real life. And these things don't happen in real life the way they used to. They, they did migrate over into these different forms in ways that are good and bad. But, uh, I think it's, you know, people have to know each other, you know, I think it's like something that gets really lost in the shuffle. Uh, you 100%. know, artists need to talk to each other. Writers need to talk to each other, artists and writers and all these people, like the more that they're all kind of like in communication with each other, either like literally or figuratively, the better it is. Think about the Chicago boom, right? Pitchfork's part of the Chicago boom. All these people live in apartments together. They got to make rent. They got to figure out how to get a ride to go to a show. You're compelled to be a physically present and trustworthy person because of that. And local scenes, physically present scenes where people go to shows, obviously COVID makes this a million times more messed up, but there's, there's social rules there. Like you can't screw around or, you know, behave inappropriate. Like you're going to get self-copped by the other people in that scene. Well, and I mean, I saw obviously that- there's situations where like people act horribly rampantly for years and then it catches up with them like that, like, like that burger scene, for example. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's lots of weird stuff and it's funny too, because some of it gets cheered for like, you know, look at the way people lionize cokies and, and the, the whole like cocaine, like shitty stepped on Coke subculture in alphabet city around the time of the strokes and Interpol and, and LCD sound system. I mean, we've talked before about how over celebrated that moment continues to be, but it's, it's also about the fact that like, yeah, w- w- like w- where are the receipts? Like what's the narrative? Is there any correcting for it? Or are we going to continue to celebrate decadence on the one hand and then you know, go nuts on the other hand for the same excesses. It's, it's a weird line. I don't get it. Yeah. Well, I, and people like a story. I think that's like, you know, the, the, the early aughts thing with the strokes and that. And then like, I was just, I just finished and put out the, uh, the 77 to 79, uh, punk thing. And like, they're just really good stories. Like they're really good images. They're like, it makes sense why people like get really hung up on them and why that story, those stories get told over and over again. And like, one of the things you really see in punk is that from day one, from even before day one, people are self mythologizing. Oh, totally. I just got the Iggy Bowie years box set, um, in the mail. And you know, I, it's funny. I was, I was going back and forth with Nick Sylvester, who you, you got such a great episode with, uh, or two episodes. Um, and my favorite song in this whole period is not generally speaking considered one of the killer cuts, which is some weird sin. Um, I don't know what it was. There's something about the guitar tone in some weird sin that just has stuck with me and is as, as transportive now as it was when I was like a teenager and I first heard it. it because I was told that Ian Curtis was listening to it when he, when he committed suicide, which is talk about myth making, right? <laughs> like, yeah. Um, yeah. So, so, you know, Iggy was like doing shows all throughout this period while he's the godfather of punk. You know, there's a lot of famous magazine covers and stuff around that time, but he's in this different place, you know? Um, 
so deep into his career, it, it, but it's true. You're right. They were teeing up, you know, the fake name thing. Oh no, we just, we have to use fake names or else they'll find out that we're also on the dole. Eh, kind of, I don't I mean, know about that. In the United States and speaking to Iggy too, um, the thing really, I mean, the perfect example, of what I mean about the, the mythology was there from day one before day one was, uh, on the playlist I had that's before punk 72 to 76, uh, song from really at the end of that run, uh, by Wayne County and the Backstreet Boys, uh, not not those Backstreet Boys. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, the song uh, Max's Kansas City, which is really just uh, Wayne County, who became Jane County later on, uh, just telling you how cool Max's Kansas City is and like talking about all the bands that play there uh, and what they're doing, the antics. Hey, there's Louie, there's Lou Reed and uh, Iggy Pop hanging out. What are they going to do? You know, like this, <laughs> you know, it's basically the energy that people will be tapping into for years to come. And like you, he lists off all the bands and like uh, 75% of them are like some of the most famous and beloved bands in the world. Um, and it's just really funny to think about this song in terms of would anyone do this song later on? Because to do this song at that point in time, I mean, made a good bet, but it still is probably was kind of seen as like, oh, this is a stupid song. But imagine like, I mean, did anyone in Olympia, Washington do this in like 1991? Did anyone, you know, did I mean, name me a scene and like, was did anyone do a song like that about how cool the scene is and like listing off all the bands and that, how, how much everybody ruled, even the bands who sucked? And I see Lou Reed and uh, Iggy Pop, they're just uh, getting higher and higher. Give those boys one more drink and they're gonna set the place on fire. Go get them, boy. The downstairs is packed and the groupies are all dressed up. Upstairs, the New York dolls are kicking it out. Looking tough. Blondie's all in a buzz. She's on the cover of the New York Rocker. D.D. Ramon strips his bass to the bone. He's a blitzkrieg bopper. The Heartbreakers are gonna give you a taste of going steady with pirate love. And you better watch it because my Backstreet Boys are gonna rip you apart. Rip them up, boys. The downstairs is packed and the groupies are all dressed up. Yeah, I mean, it's because losing my edge and like the dead milkmen's yield dance to anything are those the are opposite thing. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Those, those are hater songs. Right. And those are arch. That's not like a hater song, but that's definitely a song where it's about, I mean, I feel, I feel like that's a really, it's always been like a really funny way to open his career where he's coming in. He's, you know, in his, I think he's by that point, he's probably like 32 or 33. He probably felt much older than he was. And, you know, coming in with like, like, Hey, I'm washed up, you know, <laughs> Like I'm, I'm, yes. Yeah, I think like that was a a good way of framing him in a kind of a self-deprecating way. Yeah, I saw him a couple times in the sound system period. You know, the pianos period, and I think that at the time I was like, okay, he's leading with his insecurity. He's he feels like he can't do what he wants to do because he's not good enough. He's not can. He's not no. You know, like, and I'm sort of okay with this because you know this is a really cerebral guy, and. I have faith that he's going to like arrive at something that isn't so vexed and, and enervating and just kind of, you know, pinned in by his own insecurity. And for me, what that was is not the commercial breakouts he had, although, you know, Daft Punk is playing in my house is one of my all time favorite cuts, but it's that Nike thing, the 45, 33 piece. Oh, yeah. That thing blew my mind. I still hold that up as probably one of the most substantial, you know, musical creations to come out of that whole period. Right. And that includes like the original instrumental stuff from someone great. 
Yep, totally. Yeah. And it's it just evolves. It's so gorgeous. You know, I think back to like Chick Chick Chick. I mean, that was another band that's gotten lost. I think back to like their first record. I, I saw them in Boston and Nick Offer came off stage and just grabbed me and started like grinding me. Like, dude, he would be so canceled today if that show was like he came out and started he grabbed my ass and started grinding his crotch against my crotch. And I was like, fuck yeah, dude, like we should be dancing. Like this shit is so uptight. Everyone's just wearing white belts and doing, you know, bad emo stuff. And I was, I thought they were such a breath of fresh air. I know. And I mean, I was all for that. I mean, yes, the dance punk thing got completely out of control, as we know, but I really thought they were incredible. And obviously, Warp Records did because they just continued to back them, you know, way past their, like, you know, blossoming hip phase. Yeah. You know, the last time I saw Chick Chick Chick, uh, they were actually opening up for for themselves as like as a stereo lab cover band. That's awesome. Yeah, I love that. And I loved Outhood too, the Street Dad record. Like, uh, I you know, it, it, again, it's it's hard to filter in a way that's um, you know, if you're the filter, then it becomes a lot about your persona and like what you're known for repping for and stuff. But I, I love those guys. I think I think they're a major through line for exactly what LCD was, and they. I just don't think they get enough credit. Weirdly, um, even though they've played huge festivals and like are probably fine. Um, yeah, I, I kind of get the sense that some of that stuff uh, will probably. I, th- I think things are. You know, there's always kind of like this period of time where things are kind of like not as celebrated and then people kind of like you know, enough time passes that you're a legend you know yeah well american like, football right american football is the big one and when all these people were talking about math rock you know i made a video about that it's i it's not online anymore I, I i'm trying to get people to stop putting my videos on youtube because of again having kids and stuff it's just weird because they're old and is a different place in my life but the point i make there is like whoa wait a minute that's this is not math rock like what are you talking when you talk about bands that just get forgotten, the band I bring up in that video is Heavy Vegetable, which was like pure math, like lunacy. And and that's Rob Crow, who ends up making a bigger name, you know, with different projects like Pinback. But yeah, to your point, it's like what gets what gets bubbled up and what gets seized on as being, you know, canon. That even that is mutable, you know, now in the in the internet age. Yeah. I think there's also a thing where it's like, I feel like this is the thing that no one ever really wants to address is that there's certain like musical things that kind of live on because it's easy or relatively easy for new musicians to ape the sound. And so certain sounds kind of will kind of carry on and always be kind of cool because it's the the kind of thing that a, a young band can do pretty well. I mean, it's the way that like there's always going to be stuff that sounds like Joy Division. Um, but I was listening yesterday to like Matador just started doing a podcast where they just have their own musicians talk to each other. And like, so the first episode they had was Liz fair, Mary Timoney and, uh, the girl from snail mail, uh, Lindsay something. I thought snail mail and Liz fair did that like two years ago. Oh yeah. I mean like those three of all definitely talked to each other many times. Okay. I I, I haven't seen this because I mean, Mary Timoney was like right in the middle of my, post-college i worked at fort apache brian her bass player with it was like the guy the engineer teaching me about studio and stuff and um yeah she's she's so great i'm so glad her and i should also mention shauna carmody from swirlies is also doing a podcast and has been for a while that people should check out um but i haven't i haven't heard this this conversation with snail mail but go ahead it's really good so like i mean and mary i think comes off particularly well in it um like like mary's very and very interesting person and, and she's much more low key than the other two. And I think I think the, the major reason like they were talking was because Mary's first solo album was reissued. And that was like the peg. Oh, OK. 
so the, what I was getting at is there's one part towards the end of it where they're both kind of like amazed that uh, the snail mail girl arrived at the music that she was making when she was like, you know, still like a teenager uh, without having really listened to any of this old college rock, et cetera, you know, all, all, all this old indie music. And they, they just were completely, completely mystified by it. And like, and I'm just sitting there screaming in my head. It's like, is like, this is just the music that, you know, if you just have like someone with like, you know, rudimentary guitar skills, like this is kind of one of those things that they'll just kind of naturally happen. Like that's what happened with those bands in the first place. I don't think you need to have actually heard any of that music to end up making music that sounds like it. No, because Liz Fair and Mary Timoney and Helium are out there. And the the artists I think of just what you were saying is uh and I'm I apologize, I don't know exactly how to say this, but Bia Doobie, the the girl in uh, England. Biba Doobie. Biba Doobie. Okay. So Biba Doobie, if you look at and I and th- listen, I only got into this because my daughter listens to Claro and all this stuff. And like I'm not telling her what to listen to. She listens to Lana Del Rey and things that I've like publicly said I'm not a fan of. I mean, this is like the music that like <laughs> this is kind of the music that's like made for and sold to like girls about the age of your daughter. So yeah, it's, it's, it's not even that weird. It's just like, there's nothing to be surprised by. This is like what is made for them. It would be like someone being surprised that I listened to Pearl Jam when I was 13 in 1993. Right. It's sad girl. It's sad girl. TikTok is what it is. And like, I totally get it. And I'm, I'm, I'm very involved in, in sort of knowing where she's going, what she's doing and who she's talking to. But like, I'm not going to be like rock How critic. Old is your 14. Okay. So, um, you know, I'm not going to be rock critic dad about it, but when I saw, um, that, that girl, what is it? Be a Badoobie? Badoobie. Yeah. I'm sorry. It's anyway. not a great name. It's not. I think, and, I think she's pretty good. She has a few songs I like a lot, but like that name is like, oof, it's amazing well, how well you're doing being called Be Badoobie. Yeah. So when I look at, when I look at Be Badoobie and I look at the YouTubes of her songs, they're like templates of the nineties. There's like a pavement song. There's a curve song. There's it's almost funny, like, like the song about Stephen Malcolm doesn't really sound like no, pavement, it doesn't. But that's my favorite one by her. But there's these other ones that sound like, and and this is what I hear getting getting into um, a lot of the new music is the dance pop stuff. So I hear a lot of curve. I hear even Ned's Atomic Dustbin and EMF. Even like the the Stigmatas, not like the Unbelievable period, but. Um, I hear that pre-Nirvana utopia, which is something yes. you you and I have talked about. I was I- listening to like the even just specifically Biba Doobie. I was listening because like she just released a new single like a week or so ago. And I was listening, I was like, man, she just goes in on that like 1989, 1990 guitar sound. Yep. Like obsessively. I don't know. I mean, I think it might be a thing like, you know, like, I don't think you necessarily need to know that music to arrive at that. Especially no, you if don't. You just, if you just, I mean, I think you just get like guitar and if you have the right like pedal or two, you just kind of, if that's something you want to do, you're going to do it. You don't necessarily need to have a doctorate in, in ride or something. You don't need to be Martin Hannett to figure out how to sound like Martin Hannett. That's the difference. And you can go on any website and look up the rig and how they got this sound. What synthesizer did they use? So when, and I, I, this is uh, something I wrote so long ago, but I wrote a huge piece about this kind of spinning off of Daniel Lopatin, right? Which is that if all these sounds, one Oh tricks point never, right? Yeah. One Oh tricks point never. Yeah. Um, he, you know, the way he was working was celebrated for its kind of sonic accuracy in many circles, which is fine. But when you can just click and there's a website that tells you exactly what VST or plugin you got to drop in and it will immediately sound exactly like X record. Like it's the cure 17 seconds. It's unknown pleasures or, you know, whatever you want to talk about. It's echo and the bunny man, all these eighties chorus and flange guitar bands, the, the ability to just be able to click and have pictures of exactly what settings and what effects pedals you need to put in front of your guitar rig. Um, that's super messed up. And, and I was, I mentioned Nick earlier, we used to talk about this all the time when his band, Mr. Dream was still going strong. 
And you would just see these bands where it's like, well, that's a $2,500 jazz master and those pedals, let's add that up. That's about, you know, another grand. And the stuff that these bands would be coming out with was like, it was a little bit scary. Like you didn't have to be part of the music scene and young and hungry and talking to record store clerks. You could just form this all in your head. And if you had some money, buy the right gear and sound like whatever you wanted. Yeah. From okay, so from your perspective as a person who's like pretty well acquainted with all lots of music equipment, you're you know you're 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 a good musician. What are things that are really hard for some for people to just kind of emulate? Like, what would be a good example of like, well, you're not going to easily arrive at that sound. Uh, we were talking about Iggy Pop in the Berlin years because David Bowie's not a natural producer. Um, you know, some weird sin. Try and sound like that. Good luck. Um, it <laughs> one of the big things that you will not hear anyone ever use predominantly is out of phase signals. That is that creates actual like pain in certain circumstances. Um, phasing, um, whether it's in the studio or live or whatever. Dumping phase to inversion is a very weird move. It's almost an amusical move. So you don't hear that played with much. Um, like, but, but I mean, that's, that's a big part of My Bloody Valentine is the extreme phasing. Exactly. Because, but he's using it in a way that's like academic. Like he's, I mean, without being a mathematician, he's setting up inversions that actually have a, like a frequency response. He's massaging that and he's doing it so that there's space meaning this frequency is actually canceled by this instrument. So this other instrument can be in that space. It allows you to create the kind of delicacy um, uh, that, you know, you find on that record. It, that's, that's, that record is not about noise. That record is about um, the absence of noise in so many ways that that's not really well understood because everyone thinks, oh, only shallow. I'm going to get, you know, a fender blender and seven other pedals and turn everything up to 10 and it's going to be this wall of sound. It's like, no, that's not at all how he got that. Yeah. Yeah. I think like my bloody Valentine is probably like probably the all time greatest example of something that people will hear it and they'll be inspired by it and they will not know how it was made, but they can just by, you know, a naive attempt, you can create something good from that. I mean, I think most shoegaze music is basically people who don't know what they're doing, like aiming for something that Kevin Shields was doing on one of, you know, if, if not that one, uh, you know, I think isn't anything as well. But For sure. You know, I, but but yeah, but it, it, it's ultimately a naive attempt at, to do something that this the guy who is a lot more thoughtful and a lot more accomplished was doing. Yeah. And that's how like most of the best bands start. You're trying to, and I literally, I've told kids this face on that are trying to start bands and have asked me stuff. I say, just slavishly try and rip off, excuse me, we should probably not use that word. Um, just emulate, um, say emulate, emulate. Yeah. Um, absolutely emulate and rip off your favorite song. Cause you're not even going to get close and it's not going to sound anything like it, but you'll still come away with a song. Don't right. hide, don't hide from that. I think there is. <sighs> I think this is one of those things that's attributed to John Lennon, but the, the notion that like originality is basically like trying to do something and not being good enough and where you land when you're aiming at the thing you can't do. Yeah. And I mean, look, I, I'm totally guilty of, I told kids exactly what the effects units are that Kevin Shields used. If you get a MIDI verb two and you can get him used, the prices keep going up. Everyone was buying the wrong rig for a decade, man. Everyone was buying the SPX 90. That's not the right rig. You can get it as the GEP 50. There's another foot stomp unit called the Rex that I have. I gave one of them. I had two of them. I gave one to someone else. Um, the, the people, the, the, because there wasn't an internet and there wasn't a definitive referendum on exactly what the truth was, there was some telephone games, games of telephone going on with what Kevin's, you know, skeleton key was. But the reality is it's two units. There's a Yamaha unit. Like I say, the GEP 50 is the cheapest and easiest way to get it. And there's the Alesis MIDI verb two, and it's patches 46, 47, 48, and 49. They're called bloom. And that's it. Have you ever been able to kind of approximate like a, like to hear knows when or something like that on your own? Just, just, you know, just trying to go for it. (laughs) So in 2007, when I was still living in New York, I booked a week in a studio in Astoria and I had these demos I've been working on since 2003. Uh, while I was, you know, the whole time I was living alone, uh, excuse me, while my wife and I were living in a a pre-war in hell's kitchen. And 
I wrote an album that was basically originally, I was going to call it another bullshit. My bloody Valentine tribute volume six. Um, I've sent this album with my tuneless attempts at scratch vocals to so many people over the years, uh, trying to find a singer to maybe finish it one day, but it is exactly that. Um, I'll send you, I'll send you a a sample of it. If you want to play a snippet, it's not, it's not great, but Um, I very intentionally went in and wrote 10 songs that um, use all those same effects. And I, I'm not trying to make them sound exactly the same. My contention was always, what if you took like hardcore rock, post-rock drums, really heavy drums like that band Isis, right? And put that on My Bloody Valentine. Because Isis had this song called Glisten from the album Celestial that I loved that was doing sort of that same idea, which is, you know, think of Boris and Melvin's lots of other bands have sort of traveled the, the wall of fuzz route with big drums. So can I ask you a question in doing that? Did you find that com- kind of combining these two things that you sort of ended up with something that sounded like a smashing pumpkins? Um, I, I wouldn't say it sounds, it certainly doesn't sound like gish, like hair metal era pumpkins there's no question though that that parts of it do do have a kind of siamese dream aspect to it right um, i feel like that that would almost be like i could just imagine you accidentally just being oh i, I made siamese dream <laughs> yeah i mean there's there's totally like cherub rock stuff i mean it's the same producer he called molder and had him he's like you did loveless come do the siamese dream for me uh he was so in demand after that record it was unbelievable because everyone wanted the secrets um Everyone wanted the recipes for, you know, blown a wish and, and these incredible yeah. soundscapes and, and flood and as well. Yeah, like, too if as you, well. I remember a while ago looking at like, okay, what, what did flood do? Let me see just like his old discography in one place. And like, oh, okay. So this is like most of the records I liked between like, like 1992 and like 2004 is this like, it's just like the, the sheer volume of classics and, or even just like good records that, uh, that, that flood and Alan Mulder have their names attached to. And then like also, you know, like they have their own connections to like various Eno records. Yeah. And look at every one of those CDs and what does it say on it? It was a joke, a running joke with all my music nerd friends. When we were like 13, 14, every CD says mastered by Nimbus on it. <laughs> it and it's like, you can't believe it. <laughs> I, uh, when I worked at BuzzFeed, uh, two of my colleagues there, uh, Alex Natus and Peggy Wang, they were uh, previously in the band The Pains of Being Pure at Heart. I was going to mention them a minute ago. Right. And they recorded, uh, I guess, their second album with Flood and Alan Mulder. And it always took me like a lot of restraint to just not be like, hey, Alex, what's Flood like? <laughs> <laughs> you know, just a uh, derail conversation by just like, just tell me anything about Flood. <laughs> Yeah, I hear you, man. It's like, and, and there's, dude, there's such a never meet your heroes aspect to all this too, because every one of them that I've ever talked to has been like a crushing defeat. And I don't know if it's cause you're so, you're so naked. You're so exposed. You're such a fanboy. Like when I, when I interviewed Simon Raymond from Cocteau twins, um, oh my God, I just, my foot was in my mouth the whole time. Every question was a dumber question. than The one before it, I, it was absolutely brutal. And it took like, it took getting to the age I am like two years ago. I interviewed Lowell Tolhurst from the cure. It's he's the first member of the cure that I ever interviewed, despite knowing more about this band than probably any other band. And I, the, the hard part there was, you know, I was more seasoned and more mature and less worried about it. Than when I was like, you know, 21 interviewing the bassist from the Cocteau Twins. And 
the interview, unfortunately, he was like totally closed off because he was doing 50 of them, you know, as a press promo for his book. And it took me, I had an hour. It took me like half an hour for him to start paying attention almost and being like, wait, how do you, you know, all this different, like, you know, about the, we knew the specials and you know, all these relationships that I don't, I was like, I'm a music critic. Like I did this for decades and um, it, it was tough because he got sort of excited finally. And we had like 20 minutes left and it was the only 20 good minutes where he was like, Oh, I remember that. That was so funny. And you know, I just, at the end of it, I, I didn't use, I couldn't use any of it, but I just felt like maybe I actually made this guy like smile that day. And that can be, that can be what I got out of, you know, 30 years of obsessively listening to his band. So uh, when we, right before we hit record on this, I was like, oh, we'll use CDs as a starting point. Yeah. And here we are like nearly 40 minutes into this and we have not. So let's, let's pivot to that. Let's talk about CDs. You, you mentioned to me that you have been just acquiring lots and lots of CDs just in the past year. I've been doing a similar thing for a little while, I guess maybe like going back four years or something like that, because CDs are so cheap now. This is used CDs, even new CDs will just be like really cheap. So like, what was the initial thing for you there? This going back to CD. Well, so what I started noticing, and I think anybody will notice is that songs will come and go on streaming. Um, when the rights change hands, when someone sells their catalog, when Warner, Warner Chapel or Cherry Red buys up all the rights for Dinosaur Jr. in the dis- digital world. Um, and this pattern, you know, look, I'm not a tinfoil hat person who's going to go out and buy every CD ever made. But as far as the music that's been important, which isn't to say that it's necessarily my favorite, but music that I have an innate response to, like I see that album cover and I'm like, oh, I remember that. And, and one of the things I was telling you was funny is a band that I like personally did not like for personal reasons, <laughs> um, death cab for cutie. I just bought their whole discography for eight bucks. And it's just because, you know, when I look back at the picture book of my life, it's music. And, you know, I, th- I, I can't stand the fetish vinyl thing. I've always hated that. And so when I started looking on discogs, because, you know, when COVID hit, we're all staring at computer screens. You know, these CDs are $1.99, and if I buy 10 of them, I get free shipping. So I can spend 40 bucks and get like 27 CDs. Yeah. And that was so silly to me that, you know, um, I've, I looked back and did the accounting before we talked, and I've bought over 700 CDs in the last year. And I think the most I paid for one of them was like uh, an out-of-print Enya box set. I think I paid, I splurged and paid 40 bucks for it. Right, but it's which like, is like it's significantly less than it would have been at the time. Exactly. And it, it's just the fact that CDs have been, they've been rejected. I mean, I think this is already starting to turn and kids are realizing that uh, vinyl actually sounds like crap and it does not, there's no legitimate argument that it's sonically superior to a digital, to digitally captured the same master tape. Like, yeah. That's so illogical. It's not even worth talking about. Um, I, I, I mean, part of the reason for me, other than it being cheap, is like I just feel like is this a better listening experience? Just throw a CD on. You're not flipping sides. I think the flipping sides is hugely overrated. I have tons of vinyl too. There's like I have lots of artists like they're like I I just I try to keep discographies consistent. So they're you know. So I have like all the pavement, for example, that's like Malcolm and pavement, all of that stuff that that's all vinyl. So if there's a new thing from him, I get it on that format. But yeah, anyone else like now, now you're getting your CD. Um, and like, you know, there's also there's lots of places where you can just go to like, uh, you know, in New York, there's housing works. I, I happen to live like a, like a block away from a housing works. So I can pop in there and like the, the CDs there are a dollar a piece. Yep. It's like, okay, you know, and, you know, there's lots of stuff you don't want, but, you know, every like I'll pop in there once in a while and they'll be like, oh, I'll take that one dollar. No, sure. Sure thing. And I live in Park Slope, Brooklyn. So like the taste of people who are donating stuff there is pretty decent for the most part. Yeah, you're ahead of the game there because, well, the, the other part of this is so I'm in the burbs, right? And you get, you can find some weird stuff in the burbs. Like the, the transfer station will have like a sharing place and I've gotten like really good high quality speakers there for free. And one of the things I got were these incredible tower speakers made by infinity in the nineties there, they were like $4,000 a pair at the time. I got them for 20 bucks at a church fair 
And I got a reference um, receiver amplifier, a proton amplifier, NAD and proton. Like if you grew up in the 80s, this is the American psycho stereo system. Like there's a, you have no choice. If you were into music in the 80s, you have a fetish for exactly this kind of stuff, the Bang and Olufsen stuff, right? Um, so I got a, I got a proton receiver off Craigslist for 110 bucks. And I, I, the, the other thing that we talked about is I got a laser disc player for $50 from a karaoke place that was going out of business so that I could buy the handful of, you know, weird laser discs that have never been and are unlikely to be, um, put out on the, you know, Blu-ray or DVD. <laughs> What's a good example of one of those? REM succumbs, baby. I got the oh, yeah. Japanese. <laughs> I got the Japanese laser disc of REM succumbs. Now the laser discs are not cheap. Uh, this is very targeted purchasing. I'm talking like one a month because they're going to run you 40, 50 bucks. Right. Because um, the, the laser disc, the people who are into laser discs, that is a whole cult. And it's mostly like Hollywood or like a hardcore movie guys. Well, because of Star Wars, right? It's kind of that drives it because the the PCM audio, it's just, oh man, it's such a boring conversation. But this uh, is well, where in my mind, I'm just remembering like uh, the Amoeba in Los Angeles, like they have like a whole laser disc section and they're all like crazy price selling to like, you know, you know, Hollywood guys. Um, but I mean, that's also a place where I bought like a lot of used CDs because they have an extremely good used CD collection. And, oh yeah, I like, went to and, that was and, like, the, the first place thing I about went. them is like they will mark when something is from the eighties is uh, a first, you know, a first edition or whatever, like an early edition. So it's like a pre uh, remix, a pre remaster into loudness war stuff. So like I have yep. like so like uh, a good example of that is I have like the first few. Like a, a, a solid chunk of the Cure catalog on CD in the like in that era, like they're, the CDs are literally from the eighties, and they yeah, sound that, great. They sound terrific. That's a um, that's a big one for me, which is um, and you're going to get a little little bonus nugget that's not been in any of my Cure podcasts, buddy. The <laughs> the <laughs> the weird thing about the Cure is it relates to Seymour Stein. So Seymour Stein, Sire Records, the guy who founded Sire Records, he he knows something's going on in England. So he's flying over there. Cause he's also an obsessive art collector. If you haven't read his book, it's phenomenal. Anyone who likes music needs to get Seymour Stein's autobiography. Um, he goes over to England on behalf of Warner. Cause Sire's already being sort of sub imprinted by Warner brothers. He signs, um, Depeche mode and the cure. And then Warner's like, well, we can't spend all this money promoting two of these, you know, fringe English bands. You got to pick one. So he picks Depeche mode. So the, <laughs> the cure ends up falling. He, he totally regrets this. He's like, this is one of my biggest mistakes. <laughs> like I love Depeche Mode. They've made tons and tons of money as much as the cure and their friends, the cure and Depeche Mode are hugely interlinked um, by the Beaumont family. But anyway, the point is Seymour Stein goes over and, and he signs them. So for like two years, the cures hits are all on sire um, and their worst album, the top. The key thing for the loudness wars is prior to that, Chris Perry had done a deal with A&M. If you can find the A&M CD or vinyl of Happily Ever After, which is 17 Seconds in Faith, packaged as one album set, those albums will never sound better than that. They never have, and nothing The Cure ever releases again will ever sound any good because Robert Smith is a control freak and he's ruining all of their albums. And every time another remaster comes out, it's more painful than the one before it. Yeah. I mean, the, the most beautiful... 80s uh i feel like yeah the, the, some of the best sounding cds you'll get are all made in the 80s they are recorded digitally so it is a pure transfer they're uh mastered to be cds to take advantage of the unique qualities of cds and the dynamic range offered by them the you big know? one the big one is is peter gabriel so i mean that's the that's almost like a joke at this point yeah i mean yeah i think so is to early cds what like Steely Dan's Asia would be to like 70s vinyl. Hundred like, percent. This, 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 this is a control record. You you know you listen to this. Okay, that's how that's how it should be. We can deviate this direction or the other, but this is like the standard. If you put on the stereo system that I have that dates from this time, I also have a Nakamichi CD player which I paid zero dollars for. It was <laughs> given away at the dump. Um, and this is the advantage of living in a like wealthy suburb, like. I'm not loaded, man, but like I can dumpster dive from the loaded people. <laughs> and, uh, and I have this great stereo system that in total, I think it cost me all of it together, including the laser player and the tape deck. We're like, I think I have 250 bucks, including the speakers and all the 
the units. But if yeah. you put on red rain on my system in my basement, it's, it, I can't even tell you, Matthew, it is. And it's not just that it's like, like you say, anything from this period, the way people's ears were tuned, they were tuned to vinyl, which means headroom. You don't brick wall it. You don't, the loudness thing doesn't come in until famously Oasis really. Um, and that no one looked at, at digital as a means to take advantage of, of raising or lowering, depending on how you talk about it, the headroom on a recording. They wanted to maintain, just like you say, accuracy, exact pinnacle accuracy to vinyl, because otherwise people are going to reject this format because it doesn't sound like what they're used to. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm actually looking directly in front of me at like a, some CDs and like one of them is the PJ Harvey uh, Rid of Me, which a lot of people oh. always complain about as being like, oh, that's recorded too quiet. I hate no. how quiet like, No, if you play, like, listen, I get that if you're listening to it a, a, a bunch uh, amidst a bunch of other things on streaming or on a mixed CD, like whatever, that kind of that is annoying. But if you listen to that record the way it's meant to be heard, where you just you know put the CD on on a decent system, like the the loud stuff hits so much more effectively. God. And that's Albini's whole thing is headroom. Listen to Bedhead, listen to anything Albini's done, even in utero, famously, right? Listen to all the Jesus Lizard records he did. He wants the sonic dynamics to be there. And that and the end of, you know, that that I, I mean that finale of of rid of, of Don't You Wish You Never Met Her, like it's the cures a hundred years to me. It is one of those primal, it's like the female um, you know, inverse of that male rage. It's this incredible. The, the emotional dynamics of that song, you know, it, it's cheap as hell to talk about, you know, sexuality. It's literally, it's literally a whisper to a screen. Oh yeah. Song. Yeah, it is. And, and, but to me, it's also the, 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 the gender, you know, it's, a, it's sure. It's probably, uh, you know, a kind of, um, heterosexual type dynamic, but it is so raw, man. That shit explodes in the finale in a way like that was like a workout song for me, dude, for years. Like if I was going running and I was feeling gassed, if I put, if I put on rid of me, it was just like, I'm back. (laughs) I'm going to twist your head off. Say till you say, don't you wish you 